Hi there, I'm Jeremy Myers, and this is the Redeeming God Podcast. So we're in our study of Ephesians still, and so far in Ephesians, Paul has instructed his readers to live at peace with people that they used to hate and to begin loving them instead. Now, if you have ever tried that, you know that that is much easier said than done. So in Ephesians 3, which is the chapter we're in right now, Paul is showing how he himself is doing this. That was Ephesians 3, 1 through 13, which we have previously studied. And how his readers, which would include us, can follow in his example by loving their enemies which is what Jesus did. And that's what Paul talked about in Ephesians 2. You start to see it in a pattern here. Jesus loved his enemies. We should do that. Uh, Follow his example. That's Ephesians 2. Paul loves his enemies. We can follow his example. That's the first half of Ephesians 3. Now the second half of Ephesians 3, how we ourselves can follow the example of Paul and of Jesus in loving loving our enemies as well. Okay, that's where we're headed today. But before we get to that, we do have some questions from a reader. Actually, I got one reader with two questions. Uh, The first one is about how Jesus is the elect one, and second, about how Jesus was morally perfect. So let's first consider those questions. I'm sorry to interrupt, but there's something in your email box. Well, thank you very much. So here are the two questions submitted by a reader named Michael Spina. He Gave me permission to share his name on the podcast. Thank you for submitting these questions, Michael. Here's what he wrote. I have a couple of questions that I hope you'll be able to clear up for me, hopefully once and for all, because these questions have always creeped in throughout my spiritual journey. First, I'll ask the question, and then I'll express my thoughts behind each question so you have an idea of where I'm coming from. Please forgive any trespasses if any of my expressed thoughts cause offense. Number one. If Jesus is the chosen one by God, and Jesus is God incarnate, then wouldn't it make more sense to say that God reincarnated himself into a man to redeem what has been lost, and those who believe and trust in him will be elected to service? Wouldn't that be more consistent to Jesus' character and personhood? And then here's his thoughts sort of on that question. Every time I read or hear that Jesus is the chosen one by God, I tend to think uh, equal opportunity. Why Jesus and not me or anyone else? It is the kind of statement that might cause the flaring up of jealous and or resentful feelings. But wait a minute, Jesus is God incarnate. Of course, no one else, because we are not God. So if we are to be saved, only one of those among the Godhead can be elected for the role as Savior as opposed to one of us humans, right? Because we didn't create ourselves. Only the creator of something has the real power to repair that something. I'm not going to read all the comments by Michael. If you want to go read them all, you can. But, uh, but he's basically showing his view on that. Okay, and here's the second question, which Michael says. Uh, it is said that Jesus was the only perfect human that ever lived. But perfect in what exactly? Aren't there a lot of things to be perfect at? And uh, he goes on to explain sort of his views on that as well, which, which I, w- I won't read his comments again. I'll put them in the manuscript section for this podcast, but you can go read those if you'd like. 
Uh, and so then he concludes by saying, thank you, Jeremy, for everything you do and the time you give myself and everyone else. I am truly grateful. Well, thank you, Michael, for the kind comments and for submitting the question. Let me try to briefly answer both. I did send you an email as well, um, which I, I said things slightly different there. But, but first of all, I want to let you know, I've never had a question yet that causes offense. Sort of how you started off. I'm not offended by questions ever that people send in. Uh, I, I truly do believe that all questions are good questions, okay? So on that first question, first of all, I, I'm not sure if you meant to use the word reincarnated, um, but that does not describe what happened to Jesus. He was incarnated. He was not reincarnated, okay? So I just want to make sure. It might have just been a typo on your part, but uh, incarnation is when God became flesh. To be reincarnated it's sort of this Middle Eastern spiritual mysticism view where someone lives and they die, and then later in history, they sort of um, cycle back into life, not as themselves, but as, as somebody else, or maybe even in some, in some views, like as a rock or a tree or a, a cat or a dog or a mouse or something, depending on how you lived in your previous life. Okay, so that's reincarnation. That's not at all what happened to Jesus. He was incarnated. Anyway, that's not your question. It has nothing really to do with your question. Just thought I would point that out. Uh, I would not use that term. Okay, uh, so my answer to your question is, um, well, and first of all, I wouldn't say God and Jesus are the same. They're, they're, they are, they're three persons, but one Godhead. So that's this, this idea of the Trinity. So, but yes, Jesus was fully God. And again, that's not your question. I'm just trying to be careful here on how I answer this question. Your ultimate question, it seems to be, is related to Jesus being the primary elect one. Okay? And yes, that is what Scripture teaches. Uh, we see it in various places throughout the Bible. Jesus is the elect one, the primary elect one. Now, you answer that wouldn't, you, you say, well, wouldn't that mean we're all elected him? And that is the truth. Uh, the Bible teaches that as well. Everyone who believes in Jesus for eternal life, they also, because they are in Jesus, they also are elect and chosen. Okay? Now, we need to be careful here because there are people in history, in world history, who were chosen or elect by God, uh, yet who were not believers. That is, they did not have eternal life. Okay? So, it is not true to say, as some believe, that all believers, I'm sorry, that all elect people are believers, okay? All believers are elect, but there are elect people who do not have and did not have eternal life. How can that be? The answer is that uh, the concept of election or being chosen has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with receiving eternal life. Instead, being elect or being chosen is being chosen by God to perform a particular action or service in human history, okay? We say that election is to service, not to eternal life. I do write about this in my book uh, titled The Re-Justification of God. You can get that on Amazon or pretty much anywhere books are sold. But uh, Jesus is elect. He was the primary elect one because his task, his mission, his ministry was the most important thing that God wanted to accomplish in this world. Now, the rest of us who are believers in Jesus— we also are elect, we also are chosen, and we also, like Jesus, are chosen to perform a particular service or ministry or task. And that's where spiritual gifts come in and our, our desires, God-given desires. 
Ultimately, though, our ministry, our task, our mission will be the same as that of Jesus. Jesus is the elect one. We are elect in him. Therefore, as believers, as disciples, as followers of Jesus, we follow in the footsteps of Jesus to basically do the same thing in this earth that Jesus was sent to do, to, to, to carry out the task that he started. Okay, so when we realize that, it doesn't really create uh, feelings of jealousy in us, but rather partnership with Jesus. We partner with him in his ministry and mission and task, and he partners with us so that together we can all fulfill what God wants us to do on this world. Okay, so that's sort of a brief answer to your first question. Second, on your second question, regarding the perfection of Jesus, uh, I agree with you. There's lots of things you can be perfect about. And when scripture or theologians or Bible teachers talk about the perfection of Jesus, they are, we are primarily referring to the moral perfection of Jesus, okay, that he never sinned. I don't think, for example, that it refers to every possible aspect of perfection. For example, uh, tennis, <laughs> tennis player. Was Jesus a perfect tennis? Obviously, he never played tennis. Tennis didn't exist back then, but... But uh, if Jesus did play tennis, would he be the perfect tennis player? You know, never miss a serve, never miss a hit. The ball would never go out of bounds or never go into the net. No, I think that's ridiculous. Uh, it's possible Andre Agassi could beat Jesus in tennis. Okay? Wouldn't that be a fun match to watch? <laughs> Maybe Jesus wouldn't even be able to swing a racket. I don't know. Or hit the ball at all. Okay? Uh, would, did Jesus have the perfect singing voice? Well, I don't know, and the Bible doesn't talk about the voice of Jesus and if he was a good singer or not. I just did some quick study on Google right before recording this, and according to Rolling Stones magazine, which I don't really care what they have to say, but according to them, they say that Aretha Franklin has the best voice of all time. Greatest voice of all time, they say, goes to Aretha Franklin. Okay, great. She had some wonderful songs. Um... And, and, you know, maybe uh, her voice is better than Jesus. In fact, we could probably say it would be. I don't know. Um, I, I'm not sure I say she has the greatest singing voice of all time, but why couldn't it be better than Jesus? Maybe Jesus sang off key. I don't know. Um, okay. Same goes for math problems or or whatever you can think of. I mean, running, did, did Jesus as a boy never stumble and fall, never scrape his knee, Right. Uh, never, never get cut accidentally with a knife when he was trying to help Mary prepare dinner. I, okay, no, uh, I, that that's 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 just ridiculous to think about those things. Jesus made those kinds of mistakes. Okay, we need to be very careful when we're talking about Jesus. Remember, he was fully human and fully divine, uh, and his perfection is referring only to his moral perfection that he never sinned. But we need to make sure that when we do that, we don't remove all the humanity from Jesus. And these other things are what make us human. And for Jesus to be fully human, he needed to learn things. Like if he was going to play tennis, he would have had to learn how to hold the racket, how to uh, toss the ball, and how to hit over that. Okay, he would have had to learn all those things. Same with math, same with singing or music, same with running a race or handling a knife and cooking dinner. Okay, all of those are related to the humanity of Jesus. And uh, he would have made mistakes in all of those, just like the rest of us. Um, the perfection of Jesus says nothing about those sorts of things. 
Now, having said that, it's, perfection of Jesus refers only to his, his moral perfection. Now, I want to say quickly, before we move on from this question, that what's very, very interesting about the moral perfection of Jesus is that the religious leaders of Jesus' day were convinced that Jesus was a great sinner. Okay? That's what's very surprising. If you were to ask the leading spiritual voices in Jerusalem during the day of Jesus— if Jesus was morally perfect, most of them would have denied it, said no. Uh, in fact, they killed him. They crucified him because he was, what? A blasphemer, one of the greatest sins you could possibly commit. They were convinced Jesus was a sinner. He spoke against the temple. He spoke against the law of Moses. He ate the wrong foods. He hung out with the wrong people. Okay? He, he forgave prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners. He was a friend of sinners, right? So. Uh, it's just interesting uh, when, when we start thinking about the moral perfection of Jesus. Jesus was morally perfect from God's perspective, but not necessarily from mankind or religious perspective. And so it just goes to so, show you that sometimes the religious leaders of, of Jesus' day, and therefore of today as well, maybe don't have the same moral standards that God does. Maybe some of the things that we call sinful, God does not call sinful. Jesus was morally perfect from God's perspective, not necessarily from man's perspective, okay? So anyway, a little food for thought there as we close out sort of the Q&A section of this podcast study. Let's move on then to our study of Ephesians 3, 14 through 17. So in Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 19, Paul tells his readers what he is praying for them, okay? He, he, he has three prayer requests, and he says, here's what I'm praying for you about. And we're going to look at those three prayer requests over the course of two studies, this one and then the one for next time. But you should know that at first glance, all three prayer requests seem to be impossible prayers, okay? Paul wants his readers to do what cannot be done, to know what cannot be known, and to be filled with that which uh, they cannot be filled. Uh, and we're going to talk about all three of those. We'll be looking at the first one today, to do what cannot be done. But uh, all three prayer requests ultimately come down to one main point. And it's the main point that Paul has been writing about throughout all of Ephesians chapter 2 and all of Ephesians chapter 3 so far. And what is that point? Paul wants his Ephesian, the Ephesian Christians, the readers, which since, you know, we're not Ephesian Christians, but we are readers, so it includes us. Paul wants us to live at peace with each other, and not just each other, but with, with everybody in the world, and, and especially, primarily, with a focus on our enemies, the people that we would rather hate, the people hit, that hate us, and uh, who in the past we have hated. Okay, it's very similar. Paul's point in Ephesians 2 and 3 is very similar to the point of Jesus in Matthew 5, uh, that we are to love our enemies. Okay, and we all know that. Oh yeah, I'm supposed to love my enemies. But have you ever really tried it? I mean, seriously, not just with your words. Oh, I love them. I hope that they repent of their sins and believe in Jesus so they can, they can spend eternity with us in heaven. I, okay, great. But have you actually with tangible efforts and words and behaviors, gone and tried to love your enemies, those who hate you, and maybe you, when you're honest with yourself, realize you have a little hate for them. 
If you ever have tried to, you know that it is next to impossible to show love for our enemies. Okay? So here in Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 19, Paul says he is praying for his readers that they would love their enemies. Okay? And we're going to see that um, if we're going to do this impossible thing, namely love our enemies, to, to do what cannot be done— then we need to know what cannot be known and be filled with that which we cannot be filled. Okay, so there's the three prayer requests. To do the impossible, to love our enemies, to do what cannot be done, we need to know what cannot be known and be filled with that which we cannot be filled. Okay, so those are the three prayer requests that Paul is talking about, writing about here. And of course, he concludes chapter three with what? That God can do the impossible. He can do far more than we can ask, think, or even imagine. And so, uh, anyway, that's that's what Paul is talking about in these verses, and we'll be studying that this time and next time in these studies. So, the first step towards this impossible task of loving our enemies, of loving those that we would rather hate, is uh, to to recognize that God is loving us, even though we are His enemies. Okay, to 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 recognize that just as God loves us, we can love others. In other words, to love others, we first need to know that we are loved. And uh, that is what, again, Paul will be talking about here in these verses. So let's begin then in verses, uh, verse 14. Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so he's saying, I'm praying for you. Now this term, uh, bow the knees, it's a Hebrew idiom for, for saying, I kneel. Okay, you and I would say, I kneel. Uh, Paul is saying, I bow my knees. And uh, that's why some of your translations uh, have, have made it more readable by saying, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. Okay, that's what it means. I kneel. And that's the way we, you and I would talk about it today. It's interesting, though, that Paul uses this term, though, and I think he does it intentionally. Because most Jewish people in the days of Paul, in the days of Jesus, when they prayed, they prayed standing up. Uh, would often raise their arms and their face towards the heavens and pray in, in that way. Okay. But here, Paul makes a point of saying that he is kneeling when he prays. And I think this is just a way of indicating that God is sovereign, that God is his king, and that uh, God, that Paul will do what God wants. Okay? And I'm not saying that this is the proper posture for prayer. I don't think there's any such thing as the right posture for prayer. I do talk about this some in my book, What is Prayer? But a lot of times when we're young, we are taught that the proper way to pray is with our eyes closed and our head bowed and our hands folded. And if we really want to be spiritual, then we need to kneel. Uh, that's That idea has led to some really bad practices and bad thinking about prayer. Prayer, as I talk about in my book, is really nothing more than talking to God. The way you and I might talk to each other if we're hanging out over a cup of coffee. We, we just have a conversation. And that's what prayer ultimately is supposed to be, just having a conversation with God. And you can have a conversation with God anywhere, can't you? In your car, while you're at work, while you're going for a walk, while you're vacuuming the house, while you're doing the dishes, while you're falling off to sleep. And that's the way prayer can be, a constant conversation with God wherever you go and whatever you're doing. You don't need to be kneeling when you pray. Paul is just mentioning that here, as an indication of the seriousness of this prayer that he has for the Ephesian Christians. Okay, uh, verse 15 then. From whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. All right, we don't really pick it up here in the English, but Paul is doing, he's playing with words a little bit here in the Greek. 
the Greek word for father, which Paul mentioned there in verse 14, I kneel, uh, I bow my knees to the father. The Greek word for father is pater. And the word for family, which he mentions here in verse 15, is patria. Okay, so Paul is saying that we, the patria of God, the family of God, is named after God the Father, the pater. Okay, so uh, anyway, just a little word play there. That's really not significant for Paul's point. I just wanted to point it out. Uh, what Paul is writing, that he wants us to do the impossible, which is love those that we don't want to love. And here is the first foreshadowing of how to do this, right here in verse 15. From whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. One of the keys to loving your enemies, to loving those that you would rather hate, one of the primary keys to this is recognizing, learning to see that they are not really your enemies. Instead, they are part of your family. To love others, the first step is to see that we're all part of the same family under God. I talk about this in my podcast study on Genesis 4-8, and uh, that's obviously, if you remember, where Cain murders his brother Abel. And I make the point that this is the first time in this context, the first time sin is mentioned in the Bible. A lot of people think the first sin, technically the first sin in the Bible, is when uh, Adam and Eve ate fruit from the forbidden tree, but it's not called sin there. Sin, the first time sin is mentioned in the Bible is when Cain murders his brother Abel and the events leading up to that. This desire and jealousy uh, over their, their offerings to God that led to violence, to murder. And I point out in the podcast study that this is very significant because what it shows us, among other things, is that all violence against other human beings is violence against a brother or sister. Violence against a family member. Okay? And uh, that, that's one of the things we see there in Genesis 4, and it's what Paul is essentially saying here as well. In fact, he's going to make this exact point later in Ephesians chapter 6, where he says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Okay, we think other humans are the enemy, but they aren't. Okay, our struggle is not against one another because we're all part of the same family, the family of God. So that's what Paul's point is here, a little foreshadowing how to think about other people. Think of them as family members, and that will make a difference in how you treat them. Okay, now, with that in mind, then, Paul transitions into his three prayer requests. To do what cannot be done, to know what cannot be known, and to be filled with that which we cannot be filled. And this first prayer request, the one we're just looking at today, is in verses 14, um, I'm sorry, verses 16 and 17, which is to do what cannot be done. All right, so let's look at that. Paul writes that, these are these Hina clauses, that's why we know there's these three prayer requests, uh, these, these Hina clauses in Greek, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love. Honestly, it's a pretty poor translation from the Greek. Um, the, the, the English word that is, is, is three times here. And so it makes it appear that there's three requests right here in verse 16 and 17, but there really isn't. There's only one Hina clause. So a better translation would be 
uh, let me propose this, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, Christ dwelling in your hearts through faith, being rooted and grounded in love. Okay, in other words, they're all related clauses uh, to what Paul wants us to do. Uh, so ultimately, sort of there's a, the outline of the prayer would be, the main prayer request is, I pray that God would strengthen you with power. Okay, I pray that God would give you his strength to do what you need to do, which is love our enemies. Okay, and then there's four sort of sub-clauses there. Uh, according to the riches of his glory, this is what God is providing to help us do it. Uh, through the Spirit in your inner man, this is from the Holy Spirit. Uh, with Christ dwelling in your hearts through faith, this is Christ in us, directing us, helping us, guiding us to do what we need to do. Notice the Trinity there, all right, from the power of God, Spirit-enabled, Christ-directed. And then the focus, or where this is going, being rooted and grounded in love. This is a focus towards other people, outwardly focused. All right, so let's just look at those sort of four clauses one at a time. God provided. Uh, Paul writes, this is according to the riches of his glory. This whole concept of riches and inheritance, remember, points us all the way back to Ephesians chapter 1. Um, and Paul is saying here that, uh, that, that uh, this power from God is according to, in proportion to, God's power. Okay? So, uh, basically, Paul is saying God has made available all of his power to you. It's not a small, insignificant amount of power, but in proportion to his power, a great amount of his power, infinite power, the power of God is provided to you. Oh, Paul, I can't love my enemies. Well, sure you can't when you're relying and depending on your own power, but guess what? God has made his power available to you. Are you saying this is impossible for God to do? No, we know it is not impossible for God because we've already seen it in Jesus Christ. And that same power is at work in you. Okay, uh, Spirit-enabled. Paul says uh, this power is by, by the Spirit in the inner man. Okay, this is the spiritual side of us. The fleshly side of us is the side that wants to fight and argue and engage in violence uh, against other humans. But this is in our inner man, the spiritual side of us. And it's, it's spirit-empowered. This is by the Spirit, by the Spirit of God. Um, this is the strengthening of our inner man by God's Spirit. Okay, very related to this, this concept of by the power of God. But we not only have the power of God, we have the indwelling Spirit, God himself in us by this Holy Spirit, helping us do what needs to be done. And it is Christ-directed. Uh, verse 17, Christ dwelling in your hearts through faith. Okay? Uh, I, this word in, in the context here of dwelling uh, has this idea of settling down with or being comfortable in. And I want you to think of your life, your, your, um, your personhood, sort of as a house that Jesus is going to come and live in. Okay, and if you were to buy an old dump of a house and move into it, hopefully, you know, maybe the previous owners were not very clean and there's marks and scuffs all over the walls and they didn't vacuum out the closets or clean the floors and there's mold and mildew all over the bathrooms and tubs and stains in the toilets and you go down to the basement and there's piles of garbage. You are not going to be comfortable living in that house, are you? 
Uh, we once rented a house where we were not in it for more than four hours when it got condemned. <laughs> Gas company came over, looked at our furnace and said, yeah, if we, put, if we turn this on, your house is going to explode. So we're not going to do that. And uh, so we had to go live in a hotel for a couple of weeks while we found a new apartment, a new place to rent. Um, very good times. That was right over Christmas season of a couple, about 10, 10, 12 years ago. So out in New York. Anyway, uh, we were not comfortable living in that house. We had to find a new place. That's what happens when Jesus moves into our house, except he doesn't go find a new place. What he does is he set out, sets out to make it comfortable for him. He sweeps out our closets. He pulls, throws out the trash. He, he bleaches the mildew and scrubs the mildew out of our our, our, our showers and our bathtubs and our toilets. And okay, he goes to work cleaning up our house, the house of our life, so that it becomes comfortable for him to dwell in. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Jesus comes in and he cleans up our life uh, so that we can do what God wants us to do. And what is that? Uh, being rooted and grounded in love there at the end of verse 17. Paul has spent two chapters in Ephesians telling us, look, you Jews and Gentiles, you used to hate each other, and even right now you're not the best of friends, you don't really trust each other, but you are one in Christ, and so now you need to get along. And one of the reasons you need to do this is because the world is looking at us for how to live at peace with one another, and we can be an example to them, okay? You need to be rooted and grounded in love. Uh, and so, so that's, that's what Paul is talking about here. The Jews are thinking, I can't go over to the Gentile's house. His food is unclean. He doesn't wash his utensils. He has pork. Okay. Um, he, he might not be following all the, the cleanliness laws. Paul, I can't, I can't go hang out with my Gentile Christian friends from, from church. And, and the, the, the Gentiles are saying similar things about the Jews, um, and Paul is saying, look, I, I know that you can't do these things by your own power. So God is going to give you his power. The Spirit is indwelling you. And, this, and, the whole, and Jesus Christ is within you to get rid of anything that keeps you away from doing what God wants. Okay? And you need to be rooted and grounded. Rooted is this idea of a tree growing deep roots down to find the, the water in the soil. And grounded is this good foundation upon which to build. Okay, and that is what Paul is talking about here. So this is the first prayer request. And guess what? We're not without resources in this first prayer request. To be rooted and grounded in love, to do what we don't want to do, to do what we think is impossible, to do what cannot be done, namely, love our enemies. But guess what? With the power of God and the indwelling Holy Spirit and Christ cleaning up our life so that he can dwell at ease with us, we can be rooted and grounded in love. All right, that's Paul's first prayer request. He's not done. The next two are along the same theme of loving our enemies. But even still, this is a big one. You and I, just like all Christians throughout time, have trouble loving our enemies. But we're not without resources. We're not without help in being able to do that. And that's what I hope you're able to see here. And we're going to see more of this teaching and this idea as we look at the next two prayer requests in the following verses. And um, we'll, we'll be heading there next time. So uh, I, I hope you found this study helpful. And um, look, if you wanted to, by the way, if you ever wanted to submit a question, so maybe I can answer at the beginning of the podcast study, just go to my website, redeeminggod.com, find the contact form at the bottom of the page. Contact me, it says, 
fill out that form, send in the question, and maybe I'll get to it. I'm not able to answer all of them by email and definitely can't get to all of them on the podcast, but I do my best to answer some of the main ones. Um, and uh, if you're having trouble loving your enemies, uh, hopefully you found today's study helpful. Make sure you join us in the next uh, next week to, to finish out uh, Ephesians chapter 3. Okay? Hey, thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. Talk to you later.